listening to Race Towards Health, a podcast from the Health Equity Council at the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Race Towards Health examines a broad range of topics connected to achieving health equity, including discussions on the impact of race on our nation's health. Please visit chronicdisease.org to find other Race Towards Health podcasts or for more information about NACBD's work on racial justice and health equity. Good morning. My name is Louise Square, and I'm the chair of the NACBD Health Equity Council. I'm happy to be with you today and to welcome Dr. Thomas Levy, Dean of the School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine at Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana. Before joining Tulane, he was chairman of the Department of Health Policy and Management at the George Washington University Milken Institute School of Public Health. Dr. Levis has written more than 150 articles in leading scientific journals and authored or edited five books on minority health issues and cultural competency in healthcare. His work has been supported by grants from the National Institutes of Health, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, Department of Defense, the Commonwealth Fund, the Russell Sage Foundation, and the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. He is also the editor of several books, including Legacy of the Crossing, Life, Death, and Triumph of the World's Greatest Forced Migration, and the book Race, Ethnicity, and Health. Both examine the state of health and equity for people of color or minorities in this country. Dr. Levy's latest examination into the matter of race and health is in the form of a documentary entitled the skin you're in. Welcome, Dr. Levis. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So before we get started, I just wanted to let listeners know who we are and how our paths have crossed. The Health Equity Council is a member-driven organization. The National Association of Chronic Disease Directors works to improve the health of, of the public by strengthening state-based leadership and expertise for chronic disease prevention and control in states and at the national level. This includes a commitment to addressing health disparities and inequities and promoting health equity. In addition, NACDD strives to be a catalyst to grow state capacity to address upstream factors with other sectors. The Health Equity Council connects members working to promote health equity for knowledge sharing, brainstorming, problem solving, and best practice dissemination. The Health Equity Council works to identify issues that make it difficult in closing health disparity gaps while working towards solutions by partnering with state health departments, national organizations, and federal agencies to serve as a collective voice. Dr. Levis, welcome again, and thank you for joining us today. We have a few questions for you. Um, As a public health leader, um, we're interested in your thoughts. So as public health and the country begins to acknowledge racism as a root cause impacting health and health outcomes in addition to the social determinants, what impact do you see this having on the work we are doing or the way we're doing our work in public health? in the healthcare and in government. Well, let me again thank you for having me on your podcast and um, say that you know, I'm in looking forward to the conversation. These are important topics. And you know, I think we're making important progress in public health towards addressing health equity. And this is a good example of that. Um, you know, I think acknowledging racism as a root cause of health equity is critical because the, the research shows that that is really at the core why we have these racial disparities in health. I do think, however, that it's really important that we spend a little time on the definition of racism, because I think a lot of the misunderstanding 
around this issue comes from people not really have operating from the same definition. Agreed. And if racism is only about individuals that have attitudes, values, and beliefs of inferiority and superiority, then it's easy to say, well, I'm not racist, therefore you're, over, you're exaggerating the impact of racism and <clears throat> many people I know are not racist and most people I know are not racist, therefore you know, racism is not really the, the issue here. But bigotry is only one aspect of racism. And it's probably, and I would go as far as arguing that it is the least important aspect of racism. That when people, when we're talking about racism and its impact on health, we're not typically talking about individuals and their attitudes, their values and their beliefs, or even their behaviors or practices. We're talking about systems that have been established within the society that produce racially differential outcomes. And those systems, as they operate, are going to produce these racially differential outcomes, no matter who's running the system, because it's not about individuals doing something. It's about the, the, the thing being set up this way. So I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. This issue of uh, wealth inequities, which is one of the big drivers of racial inequities. Wealth inequities persists because of intergenerational transfers of wealth. So what happens is that the finish line of one generation in terms of its wealth becomes the starting line for the next generation of that family because the wealth is inherited by the next generation and so on and so on and so on from one generation to the next. Well, for the majority of the time that this country existed, African-Americans were not legally able to acquire wealth. Right. So therefore, very few African-Americans are able to acquire significant wealth from their grandparents or their parents. Or, you know, right. So as, and as a result, so, so there's going to be a disparity today in or race disparity today in wealth that was established decades ago and was not the result of any actions by anyone who's currently alive. Right. This is systemic. This is not about individuals and what they are feeling or doing, right? It's about the way the, organ the society is set up. So when you think about racism from that standpoint, of it being about systems and structures and the organization of society, then yes, racism is the, the driver. And the only way to address this is at the policy level, that we have to look at how we, how we go about establishing policies that would uh, eliminate these differentials that are existing within the structure of society. Yeah, agreed. I I do um I do a bit of a training, and people talk a lot about redlining, and we know how important that was to acquiring wealth with regard to purchasing homes and things like that. But it started even back in Jim Crow, um, when though these former slaveholders who were defeated began to be put in different positions as judges and and things like that. And at some point they limited the amount of income uh, black people could earn. So to your point, there were some policies that were put in place by some people who are long gone, but it's it's systemic. Um, so yes, agreed. I think sure. I think that it kind of moves us to, to the next thought that I have, because as we're talking about systems and things that are being put in place that kind of uphold racism and therefore affect our health because, you know, we know that race is a, is the biggest predictor of our health in this country. Um, you know, all of us know that there's an, there was an executive order that was put out um, about a month ago 
mm-hmm. by our leadership that discourages anti-racism training, training um, and giving context, social context to systemic racism. Uh, do you think that this will prompt states to propose local legislation in a similar way? And if so, how do we move past that? How do we, how do we work in this public health space with partners, hopefully, um, to move past that? I, you know, I, I, I work in an in a, on a topic that is not always hopeful, <laughs> you know, but I'm a very optimistic person, and in the way that my personality, in the way that I look at it, you know. It, it, it may have an impact for a season, but it will not have an impact uh, for the long term. That the, the force and power of population change will overwhelm whatever policies are put in place now to try to create impediments. They will have an impact over a period of time, but in time they will all fall and that we will move towards a more equitable society, which is the way that the country was established you know, back in the 1700s, it was designed to evolve. It was designed to move towards equity, and it was, and it was even then, as they were writing in the Constitution that um, black people were three fifths of a human. Even then, uh, they wrote that, but they also wrote in the preamble of the Constitution that the goal would be to establish a more perfect union, and a more perfect union means that you're making an evolution, you're evolving towards this perfection and not acknowledging that we're not currently there. So I think that, um, I think that those, the impacts will be short-lived and that um, ultimately they will not have the desired effect. I love your optimism. I'm going to embrace that. I'm gonna walk away from this conversation with that. Um, I really had not thought about the phrase um, that we need to create a more perfect union. So I, I love that. But let me play devil's advocate just a little bit, mm-hmm. because I think that when we started talking about systems and when we began this conversation, we have some systems in place that were established a long time ago that still wreak havoc in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I wonder, even if this falls away at some point, um, hopefully soon, even if this executive order falls away, do you think there will be similar lasting impact that there will, pe- there will be people who will hold on to the remnants of this order? I think that there, of course there will be. I mean, th- this, you know, we are, this, this society has, um, over history has been sort of a, a, a pendulum swinging, swinging between two extreme views of what the society should be. One of you, one view was that the society should evolve towards equity and inclusion, and another view that it should not, right? And and we have we have kind of swung between those two positions um, for the last um, two hundred plus years. It's kind of the way the society has, has rolled out, and so there will always be those who will fight for an imagined um, uh, greatness in the in the past. And will want to bring us back to that greatness. And there will always be those who imagine and visualize a greatness in the future, and will try for us to evolve to that greatness. And so, yeah, there will be a, there will be a season. And even the structures that we talked about, you know, like the wealth disparities that that you know I referenced earlier, those things are there. But increasingly, people who are more interested in evolving towards a more equitable future are finding themselves in positions of leadership where they will have the opportunity 
to determine how resources are allocated. And over time, um, we will address those inequities as well. It's not going to take, it's not going to be, you know, it's, it's going to take a long time. And we, we are 401 years into this. Right? And so it's not going to, it's going to take, we're not going to get out of this in 401 days, right? So it, and hopefully it won't take us 401 years to get out of it, but it's going to take some time. And if we look at the long, the long view, for most of the history of this country, African-Americans were not even afforded citizenship. And it wasn't until the Voting Rights Act in 1965 that the federal government moved from being on the side of producing the inequities intentionally through policy to being on the side of trying to protect people from uh, those inequities. That's that's only, what is that, 60 years, 50 years ago? Yeah, yes. Uh, I, yes, and I, again, I'm going to embrace your optimism. I'm going yeah, to, I, I think this is a wonderful I need conversation. To. How, how, how else can I continue to do this work if I didn't do it? <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's so true. I just, I wonder though, because I think this is going to lead to the to my next thought and my next question for you. So as you say, we're hoping that things like this will fall away. Well, they'll fall by the wayside, but people will hold on to the remnants. So I'm, I'm, how do you and how do we, especially working in this public health space, because our audience is, is largely going to be people who work within public health. How do we kind of recognize that more subtle pushback that we know is grounded yeah. in the systemic stuff that we talked about earlier and maybe even later on in this executive order? How do we recognize that more subtle, subtle pushback um, as we move forward and try to achieve racial equity? And, and how do we call people out on it? How do we address it? So let me be clear, I, I, I don't think it's gonna fall away. I think it's okay. only going to go away because people organize themselves and do the work. Okay. And that, that's what needs to happen. What, what I'm hopeful for is that I'm seeing more and more people who are willing to do the work. And the yes. fact that there are more of us that are willing to put the work in to make change is why I'm hopeful. Not that I believe that something is going to magically happen because no, nothing will magically happen. Um, so we, we, you know, so that it's about doing the work. And I wanted to be clear. I want to be clear about that. Yes. But you know, the the subtle pushback. You know, I think increasingly you look at. So even in public health, you look at the number of African American deans we now have. Major schools, unprecedented number. The numbers of African Americans that are in positions now where they can impact the curriculum in public health. One of the projects that I'm working on now is we are doing a comprehensive review of the curriculum at the Tulane School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine to, uh, to, to root out uh, racism from the curriculum. We're looking, for, we're looking for any signs of any um, subtle, intended, or unintentional racism that we have in our curriculum, and we're looking to root it out. We're establishing a set of health equity competencies that we're going to put into our required core curriculum, not the elective course on health equity like every other school has, but it will be in our core required competency. And when we finish this review and the changes that we're implementing, it will not be possible to get a degree from our school without fulfilling the competencies in health equity. We're also working within the association in uh, program, the ASPPH, Association of Schools and Programs of Public Health to um, put together a proposal that we'll take to the accrediting body to say, we would like all 
accredited schools of public health to have within their core curriculum these required competencies around health equity. So we're working on that. And that's happening because more and more African-Americans and other like-minded people, allies, are now in positions of power within academic public health so that we can bring about a change like this. As we do this over time, everyone who is educated in a school of public health will then, will, will then have tools that will allow them to understand the health equity issues that they're facing when they're doing, when they're working, you know, as, as public health practitioners. And I think that that's, that's how we make a difference. So there'll be subtle pushback. There'll be those who don't agree, you know, certainly in the academic environment, we want to embrace that. We want people to have an opportunity to, to express those positions, but it all comes down to creating a structure that, um, that is going to train people uh, to understand issues that are not necessarily things that come to them intuitively if they don't have a certain lived experience. And I think educating people and impacting the future public health workforce is the way that we start to, to move there. I think that is so awesome. I've been promoting that even within uh, you know, medical schools. I think that's so important within medical schools. I think if you, you know, we rely a lot on practitioners for our health, um, even though we know health starts before we get to the office, to the doctor's office. So I think what you're saying is so important and I'm hoping that this can be a precedent setting and that other schools will follow suit. I think it's extremely important especially with curriculum development in every, any area. We know that every area affects health and health equity. So um, I'm hoping that you'll be the leader in that. I hope people I hope that catches fire like wildfire um, and that people follow suit. I'm going to shift just a little bit because certainly we've been talking about health. We've been talking about health equity and we were alluded to the idea of racial equity. <clears throat> and so I'm just, we're in an interesting time now. We, we're facing dual pandemics with regard to our health and COVID-19, but also with regard to racial uh, inequities and the racial unrest that we're seeing after the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor at the hand of the hands of the police. Um, and you know, these are people that are really sworn to protect us. I'm wondering if you have thoughts about what role we play in public health in addressing um, police violence or in, in addressing violence towards people of color. There's no question that there's a role for public health. <clears throat> there's no question about that. I mean, we know that the, the result of, of violence of all types, including police violence, is ill health, both directly to the person who is the victim of that police violence, but also those of us who witness it and have a vicarious you know, impact. So there's no question that you know, police violence is a public health issue. And I think that where, you know, and, and, uh, and we, we have involvement in that issue as well. But I think that where, where we can do the most good is in, um, is in helping to fashion responses that are more appropriate to the needs of communities. So for example, when, people, when someone is having you know, sort of a mental health uh, episode and the, inc and their, you know, the, inc the, the inclination for most people is to call 911. And 911 has little, little tools, few tools to address this. So what you do is you send, you know, people with guns to address somebody because they're having a psychotic break. Right. I can't imagine who would be less qualified to deal with that situation than police officers with guns. I mean, it's just a completely wrong thing to do. 
But there's no reason why calling 911 has to result in police being dispatched. I mean, if you call 911 because there's a fire, they send the fire department. If you call 911 because someone had a heart attack, they send EMS, right? So what we need is more services respond. And I think this is where public health needs to play a role because some of those services need to be, you know, who are trained to deal with mental health crises that could be sent out to de-escalate the centers. And, you know, I think public health is a place where, you know, you, you will find people with that training. And, you know, we need to create those kinds of systems and have them embedded. The other thing is, you know, health departments, city health, local health departments, some of the, mo- the most progressive, and I think, at least from my perspective, are departments that have partnered with other sectors, right? They're partnering with the police, they're partnering with schools, they're partnering with public works to help those other agencies understand how the work that they do have implications for the health of population. And I think, I think that's, where, that's where we, I think, can play the, the, the greatest role in helping to educate our colleagues and peers that are outside of public health about how their work is what we're doing and how we can provide them with you know, some support to help them to be able to deal with these public health-related issues that are really that are happening within their purview, such as in schools. And so I know that's a really long answer, and I know that you want shorter answers. But, you know, you're asking some really heavy questions that I think... I am. I have, your, I have your brain here. So, of course, I'm going to ask the heavy questions. <laughs> but I think, I think in your answer, you gave a lot of really good information. But the one that rises to the top for me with regard to public health is that we need to partner more. We, I think public health kind of puts themselves in a box because of our categorical funding, because of the quote-unquote expertise we have that stays within these disease categories. But I think it's really important what you said with regard to partnering outside of public health. And so do you have any thoughts on the folks that will be listening? Some of them will be brand new to this. Um, And like you said, there's some more progressive health departments, especially in cities. But for those who really haven't started that idea of partnering or that that don't know how to reach outside of their public health space. Do you have any thoughts about how they start doing that? Yeah. Well, if you're a health commission, if you're a health city health commissioner, right? Well, let's. Why don't you start by taking the police chief out for a cup of coffee and just talking about those areas where the work of the police and public health overlap. Take out the you know the head of the schools, uh, the superintendent of schools out for lunch and just have a conversation about the work of the two agencies. I think you'll see quickly that there's a tremendous amount of overlap between what these various agencies are doing because the real life that we live as people living in communities, we don't live lives that conform to these, you know, um, these uh, silos. You know, our lives are complex and it cuts across every sector. And um, so we try to organize government around these sectors because it's a way, it's a framework for kind of grappling with how you manage uh, communities. But, you know, you have to also be cognizant of the fact that those boundaries are artificial boundaries that don't really, you know, conform to the way people live their lives. So let's just start by dialogue. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that. And and that's so funny because that's a really simple step that just anybody can take, um, whether anything comes out of it or not. So I, I know we're running out of time, but 
I think this is a nice segue into your documentary. If you want to tell us a little bit about your documentary series, because um, you came back to Brownsville and you interviewed some folks in Brownsville around some of these same issues, yeah. uh, around violence, around policing, around health. You want to talk a little bit about your documentary? Sure. So the idea for the, for the, the, the documentary series, which is called The Skin You're In, the idea came from, I wanted to, you know, we've been, uh, doing work, and when I say we, I don't just mean me, I mean the community of public health researchers have been doing work on health inequities for, for decades now, but the stuff that we do, it's, it's, it's locked away in academic journals, in, in libraries, right, that the general public can't really access, and, you know, I think there's a lot of valuable information there, and so the idea was, can we get, can we unlock that information and make it available to people who can actually make use of it? And I wanted to write a book, and the idea was to write a book to do that, but you know, not an academic book, but a book that would be for the general population. And a good friend of mine who is a in the um, music industry um, said, "Well, you know, I don't think that you're gonna um, a book is gonna get you to what you're trying to accomplish. Is you need to make a movie." And of course, I said, "Well, I don't know how to make a movie, but I know how to write a book, so I'm gonna write a book." And then. Um, the next morning, I was at a, I was being briefed by the development officer at uh, Johns Hopkins for a trip that I was about to take up to New York uh, to meet with the donor. And uh, the development officer asked me, well, are you working on anything that you think would be of interest to this donor? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to make a movie. Now, this <laughs> idea had come to me eight hours ago at dinner the night before with this friend who said, you need to make a documentary. You can't write in a book. I can get it. So I had no idea what, you know, what was involved in making a movie. And then she said something that really surprised me. Her reaction was, oh, really? Well, that same night that you're up in New York at that, uh, there's going to be a reception of people from Johns Hopkins in the film industry. Let me see if I can get you an invitation to the reception. And to which I just said, there are people from Johns Hopkins in the film industry? I didn't know that. <laughs> And so I get an invitation, I show up at this reception and I just start wandering around and didn't know anybody. And, you know, people would walk up to me and look at my badge, then they look at then they look at my face and pretend that they knew who I was and say, oh, so what's your next project? As if I had a previous film that they had seen. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what I learned. I said, okay, this is how you do it. So I started walking around the, the reception and going up to people and pretending like I knew who they were and saying, hey, so what's your next project? And so I started making friends in the film industry and they helped me to make the movie. So I didn't, they didn't let me actually touch the cameras or anything. Um, <laughs> actual filmmakers actually did the actual film work. But the idea was to kind of explain why it is that uh, Brownsville, which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn, neighborhood where I grew up, why is it that Brownsville has the lowest life expectancy of any community in New York? Yes. And so the film was about answering that question. Um, why is it that Brownsville help? What can we do yes. about it? Yeah, and, uh, and I'm in Bed-Stuy, so I'm just a couple of neighborhoods away from, Bed uh, from Brownsville. And I think, you know, I think we know that the answer, part of the answer is race. Brownsville is largely black and Hispanic. And we know that races just come full circle because we know that race is the greatest predictor of our health in this country, unfortunately. So we look forward to seeing your documentary. Is there anything else you want to tell us about? 
Well, the idea was that I was going to make a documentary. And then when, once we started shooting, it became clear that there was just way too much to tell to fit into one film. So we have the one episode that's completed, which is about me going back to Brownsville and explaining what's happening and what's going on in that community and why the disparities exist. Um, and we're now entering that into film festivals and trying to raise money to do the rest of the series, <laughs> um, which will not be all based in New York. The rest of the series will be national. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Levy, thank you so much for the time that you've spent with us and for the wisdom that you've imparted. And we hope, we hope and look forward to seeing your next iteration um, of the, um, the Skin You're In. It will have the same title? Well, the series is called The Skin You're In, and then the one episode is called Something About Brownsville. Okay. So each episode will have a different name, but the series is... Okay, well, please let us... You can follow us on social media. You can follow us also in social media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, as well as at our website, which is tsyi.org. Thank you so much. And I hope that um, we will be able to post that. We'll be able to post um, where people can follow you. And where can they see the documentary? Well, so we haven't, the, the, it's not yet released. We're, we're still entering it, entering it into film festivals. Okay. We have done some viewings. Uh, like I think you said you saw when we did, did one for Sunny Downstate. And so we will we'll, we will do you know viewings for different you know universities or other organizations, um, but it's not like publicly released. But it will be at some point. It will be released publicly. Why release? Okay. That and is we'll, hope. <laughs> okay, please let us know, and we will let our network know. So again, thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. So nice talking to you, and um, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Well, thank you for having me. I really- Thank you for joining us for this episode of Race Towards Health, a podcast series from the Health Equity Council at the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Visit chronicdisease.org to find other Race Toward Health Equity podcasts or for more information about NACD's work on racial justice and health equity. You can also see links to our state resources and credits in our episode description. Till next time.